Let's pray. Father, either we're going to see Jesus' glory this morning or we're not. And your Holy Spirit is the only one who can make that a reality for us. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show yourself good and satisfying and, and strong and kind and powerful and compassionate to us through your word and through the preaching of your word. By this we pray, your people bless. Jesus, we ask this in your name, and we ask this for your sake. Amen. You can have a seat. What do you think of when you think of somebody powerful? Someone, someone really powerful. In this culture, we often think of someone who's really busy. They've got a lot going on. They don't have a lot of time for others. If they did, they probably wouldn't help others anyway. Maybe they're proud. Maybe they're arrogant. You know, think of someone that we think of powerful, like, like Vladimir Putin. Very powerful. Now, what do you think when you think of somebody who's compassionate? Lots of times when we think of someone who's compassionate, we don't think of somebody who's very powerful at all. Most times, actually, we think of somebody who has no power, someone who's, who's down and out, been there, done that, and, and since they're down in the gutters, they can have compassion on other people who have been there as well. But, but the point is here, in our culture, when we think of power and compassion, usually it, it feels like they're mutually exclusive. You can be a powerful person or you can be a compassionate person, but you can't be both. That's not so with Jesus. If we've seen anything about our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew so far, it's, it's that he breaks the categories of the world. There's no category for Jesus. We can't, we can't put him in a box. He's unlike anything we've ever seen before. So, so with Jesus, Jesus is, is powerful beyond imagination, and at the same time, he's compassionate. Jesus is, is powerful and compassionate, hand in hand, unlike the world. So today we're going to look at three miracle accounts that show us exactly this. Uh, there, there's actually four miracles today. I say three miracle accounts because, well, A, that's following the pattern that Matthew set so far, um, a trilogy of three miracle accounts. And the second reason is the first two miracles are sort of one account, and, and they prove some really similar points. So if you haven't opened your Bibles yet to Matthew 9, please do. Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. The ruler's plea is the first section. 18, while he was saying to these things to them, okay, stop right there. Context, what, what was Jesus saying to them? While he was saying these things to them. So remember last week at the end of uh, the sermon, Jesus was explaining that he didn't come to, to fix up old dying religion. He didn't come to put new wine in old wineskins. He came to give men new life and, and new hearts. So, so Jesus' declaration is the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is coming to do something totally different, and he's showing us what the kingdom of God looks like, what, what the kingdom of God tastes like through both his teachings and his miracles. So, so while we're going through the miracles today, keep in the back of your head, this is painting us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of God looks like. Who gets in? How do you get in? How does your life change when you get into the kingdom of God? All of these questions are answered here today as Jesus shows us about the kingdom of God with his actions. So continuing in verse 18, Behold, look, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So we have a ruler kneeling before Jesus, 
He's humble before Jesus, and, and, and he's showing faith. Matthew doesn't actually tell us what kind of ruler this is. It, it doesn't say. We do know from Mark's account that this ruler is a man named Jairus, and he's a religious ruler of a synagogue. It says ruler of a synagogue. So, so he's one of the religious rulers over the Jews. Um, and so already there's some irony going on here. Jesus just got done pointing out that the Jewish religious system, as it existed then, is going obsolete. It's going away, and, and something new is coming. There's new life coming, separate from the Jewish religious system. And then yet, a man from the Jewish religious system, a leader of it, is coming to Jesus, asking him for, for new life for his daughter with childlike faith. So how do we see this man's faith? Well, first of all, he bows down to Jesus. Text says he kneels to Jesus. The King James interprets this as as he worshipped Jesus. That's probably not quite it. That's probably a little bit too strong. But for sure, what's going on here is he's showing reverence to Jesus as a master, as someone who's above him, who has authority above him, worthy of kneeling towards. Secondly, he's showing trust in to Jesus, in Jesus, in front of the religious leaders who hate Jesus. So remember, this is just picking up from last week that some of the religious leaders who are murmuring about Jesus are, are just outside, or maybe they're inside. And here comes Jairus, one of the religious leaders. And, and all of his Pharisee buddies are probably thinking, oh, okay, here comes Jairus. Jairus is going to have a really good question for Jesus. Jairus is really going to stump Jesus this time. Probably a silence around the room as they wait to hear what Jairus will say. And this brings us to the third way that, that this leader shows faith. He asks Jesus just to come and touch his dead daughter, and he believes that this will make her well. Matthew's telling us that she had just died. So so this is this is really raw. He's he's in a really vulnerable position. Uh, during during that era, almost half of all children died before they reached adulthood. This was, this was a common thing. But parents here, you know that, that statistics could never take away the sting of death in a child. Just, just the fact that it was a, a common thing would never make it hurt less and would never, would never take away all of the tears. And so Jairus is here in front of Jesus. His daughter is dead. He doesn't go to the religious leaders for comfort. He doesn't go to the synagogue. He doesn't even stay with his family to, to mourn his daughter. He goes to, to Jesus. He's never seen Jesus raise a dead person. He's seen Jesus, or at least heard of Jesus doing all sorts of miracles. Maybe he even heard of Jesus calming the storm. But he's never seen Jesus do, do anything like what he's asking Jesus to do now. But he's desperate. He, he has nowhere else to go. If anybody can heal his daughter, he believes Jesus can. We know that because that's exactly where he went. We shouldn't get the idea yet that, that Jairus is looking to be a full-blown disciple of Jesus. Really, it just looks like he's desperate. I mean, he certainly doesn't have the faith of the centurion who, who said, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house. If you just speak the word, they will be made well. He doesn't have that kind of faith. He wants Jesus to come to his home and lay his hands on his daughter. So his faith is imperfect, and he's just desperate. But what does Jesus say to this imperfect faith? How will our Messiah respond? The Messiah's reply, verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. 
We don't know what Jesus said, or we don't even know if Jesus said anything. We just know that, that Jesus got up and went away to help this man. We know from other places in the Gospels, or, or even in Matthew chapter 8, that Jesus wasn't afraid to rebuke partial faith or, or imperfect faith. Remember, O you of little faith. Jesus wasn't afraid to call that out, but he doesn't do that here. He could do it, but he doesn't do any of that. He just gets up, man is desperate, and he's on his way to heal his daughter. What do we learn about our Savior from this? Well, we learn that, that Jesus will always respond with charity and grace and action to people who come with him, come to him with imperfect faith. And this is because it's not about how solid our faith is. It's not about the durability of our faith or, or, or how amazing our faith is or how much of it we have. It's, it's just about Jesus' heart for sinners. And if there's a situation where Jesus can bring glory to himself by helping a sinner and that sinner comes to him in faith, that's the pattern here. Jesus will always do just that. And if death, Jairus' daughter is dead, if death isn't enough to stop Jesus from getting glory for himself, what makes any of us think that, that any of our circumstances are enough to stop Jesus from healing, helping, fixing, forgiving, and getting glory. So they're on their way to Jairus' house, and suddenly they're interrupted. A miracle along the way, this section. Verse 20. And behold, look, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what was, was causing the discharge of blood for this woman. It was probably a hemorrhage or just a menstrual cycle that, that wouldn't end. It was perpetual. Um, and so physically, th- this woman would have been exhausted. She would have been tired. It would have been difficult for her to just get to Jesus. But out of desperation, she goes to Jesus. And maybe worse than the physical effects of this, of this condition... Think of the, of the social and community effects that this would have on this woman. Leviticus 15 tells us that when a woman had a discharge of blood like this, she was unclean. Everything she touched was unclean. Everybody she touched was unclean. Even the people who only touched the things that she touched, they themselves were now unclean. Think about how that would impact her life can't go to the synagogue, can't go to the temple, no friends, no family, none that could physically console her at least. But but think, the worst part of that was she, she can't go and worship her God. She can't partake in her religious community fully. You, you can't help but think of the leper here. I mean, imagine how long it's been since this lady has actually been touched by somebody, has felt another human. Twelve years. Can, can you imagine that if you had 12 years without family, 12 years without friends, and worst of all, EBC, imagine 12 years without EBC. Imagine for 12 years you don't get to come and be with the people of God. This lady was a t- total outcast from her religious community and from society altogether. And just like Jairus, she goes to Jesus desperate. She's desperate, 21, for she said to herself, if only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, there's a couple of things mixed into this statement. Firstly, why is she only wanting to touch Jesus' garment? 
Well, two things it shows us is her great faith. I mean, even if I just touch his clothes, that will heal me. So there's some pretty great faith there. The second thing is, it was unlawful for her to touch Jesus. It was still unlawful for her to touch Jesus' garments, so she didn't have all of her law-keeping ducks in a row, but she was probably thinking, who, who am I? Who am I to come to the Messiah and touch him? Who am I for, for him to have to pay attention to me and, and decide to heal me? But, but if I can only get close to him, if I can only touch his garment, I'll be made well. We can't miss how great her faith is here. She believed that something was, was crazy unique about Jesus, and he was so powerful that even touching his clothes would end in an instant 12 years of social and physical misery. So again, this, this is building a pattern for us here. Just like Jairus, we see a, a mix of faith and desperation. This lady didn't have everything together, but, but she did come to Jesus. So how will our Messiah respond to imperfect faith this time? Verse 22. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Twelve years of misery, and when she comes to Jesus, in an instant, everything changes. No more avoiding friends and family. No more making sure not to touch stuff so you don't can contaminate everybody. She can freely go to the temple and, and worship the one who just healed her. And notice that Jesus says audibly, with everybody standing around, your faith has made you well. People would have heard that. People would be, be watching Jesus naturally, the crowd following him. They would have seen what happened with this woman, and they would have heard him say to this outcast woman who they don't want to touch, your faith has made you well. You are clean. This is, this is an instant cue for these people. This woman is put back in to a community. This woman's put back into society. She's put back into the religious community. And, and who can argue with Jesus? I mean, even, even if they wanted to keep her an outcast, even if they didn't want her in their circles or in their groups, I mean, who's going to argue with the voice of the Messiah? You are clean. You are part of this community again. This shows us something about Jesus' heart for his people. Jesus, when he touches somebody, when someone comes to him in faith, he, he makes them clean, and he always puts them in a community. He always brings them into the people of God. Jesus doesn't want us to be lone ranger stragglers. He doesn't want us to be alone or on our own. And why do I say, say God's people? She's put back with God's people and not just social or religious community. Well, well, look at what Jesus calls her. Take heart, daughter. That's family language. Daughter. So, so better than, than any religious community or better than any social community she could have been a part of. Now she's grafted into the family of God and Jesus is calling her daughter. As she had faith, she was part of God's family. I, I, we should just be amazed here at our Messiah and how quickly somebody's life changed when, when all they did was come to Jesus. I, I hope by now we're seeing that, that power and compassion aren't separate for Jesus. They go hand in hand for Jesus. Powerful and compassionate. Two more points here. The phrase, your, your faith has made you well. That gets thrown a lot, around a lot by a lot of charlatans, by a lot of false teachers. They abuse that. 
We're going to come back to that, that saying later, so keep that in the back of your minds. Second point, the word made well here, when he said, daughter, you are made well, just as easy and just as accurately that verse could be translated, your faith has saved you. And not even like just in a physical sense, you could translate this verse as Jesus saying to this woman, your faith has saved you salvifically. That's a viable translation. So, so why does Matthew use such an ambiguous word here that could mean both? I think what Matthew's trying to do is show us something about the nature of, of this story. Since it can mean both, we should find in this woman a reflection of how we go to Jesus for salvation. We should find in her a parable of, of how somebody approaches Jesus for salvation and, and how great a salvation they find when they come to him. So, so that in this woman, we have a pattern and an example, imperfect, desperate, but world-changing. So Jesus' word to you today is, is take heart. Take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. This is just not a story just about this woman. This is a story about everybody here who, who came to Jesus, messy and desperate. Take heart. Now remember, this miracle only happened on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. So go back a bit. They were, they were with Jairus. Jairus, please, Lord, come heal my daughter. Lay your hand on her. Lay your hand on her. And they're on their way. And just along the way to go do a miracle, Jesus is just spilling out miracles everywhere. And Jairus is walking with Jesus, and, and Jairus is seeing this. Can you, can you feel Jairus' faith building with every step? I mean, can you imagine how much lighter his steps would be becoming? And, and doesn't this tell us something about the nature of faith? He knows Jesus is going to do something for him, and it's not here yet. It's still kind of far off. That, that walk probably felt like forever for Jairus. But as he's walking with Jesus... He's seeing the nature of Jesus. He's seeing who Jesus is. And it's building his faith for a promise and a thing yet to come. So now back to Jairus' story. Jesus' power over even death. 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. So we know from some, some ancient reports like um, stuff we find in Josephus and things like that, that funerals were a big deal. Like, much like weddings, funerals in that culture were a huge deal. And, and I don't want to underemphasize how, how important they are in this culture, but in that culture and in that time, they were, they were a way bigger deal. Now, nothing compared to a funeral. Even poor people were required to hire at least one wailing woman, a lady whose job is literally just to stand there and be sad that somebody died. And she was a professional whaler. She would have made a huge commotion and, and at least probably two or three flute players to, to play songs and mourn the passing of the loved one. Needless to say, there was loads of tears, loads of commotion, loads of sorrow. And Jesus walks in and says, get out. <laughs> go, go away. Your daughter's not dead. She's just sleeping. You're kicked out of your own daughter's funeral. What? I mean, okay, okay, imagine if Jesus did that to you. You're at a funeral of a loved one, and Jesus just walks in and kicks you out. Go away. This person's not dead. They're just sleeping. How would you react? Well, here's how they reacted. And they laughed at him. Yeah, no, ki no kidding. I mean, we don't know if they were laughing because they thought it was ha-ha funny, or if, or if this was a maniacal, angry laugh because they just thought that what Jesus said was so ridiculous, but, but we almost can't judge them for laughing. I mean, 
if Jesus is just a normal person, even if Jesus is, is a really good prophet, what he just said here makes, makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. She's not dead, but sleeping. This would have been ridiculous for them to hear. Verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, okay, Jesus, <laughs> we'll go outside. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Wow. Wow. We wouldn't even have to camp out here too much or say too much more. Only it would be enough for us to just look at our Messiah. He took her by the hand, and as easy as waking somebody from sleep, the girl arose. I mean, people, just be encouraged by your Messiah, your death-conquering Messiah. This was nothing for him. This was just something he was asked to do, and he up and went and did it. Amazing. One thing that may be important to note here is that this wasn't actually the first resurrection in the Bible. In the Old Testament, two prophets actually raised people from the dead, uh, one each, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and Elisha in 2 Kings 4. They both raised people from the dead as well. But when they raised people from the dead, they were praying and, and fervently petitioning to God, asking him to do it. They, they did all sorts of weird stuff. They threw their bodies over the dead children. It, it was a whole thing. And, and they weren't even dead certain that these people were going to raise from the dead. They were just asking God, who, who was the author of life, God, could you please raise this person from the dead? But Jesus, without praying, he didn't even give thanks after. Jesus, as easy as waking somebody from sleep took her by the hand and gave her life. Just like that, and the girl arose. Unlike the prophets, Jesus Christ has life in himself. Life flows out of him. Jesus is the author of life. John 1.4 says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. So, so perhaps the Son of God was actually the one that the prophets were, were appealing to for the power of life without even realizing it. That's, that's amazing. This is amazing what Jesus is doing. Truly, we've never seen anything quite like this before. So for this girl, what Jesus said was true. She wasn't totally dead. In a sense, she was just sleeping. I mean, her death wasn't a cul-de-sac of darkness that, that she couldn't escape from. It was just a dark tunnel until Jesus took her hand and rose her again. And one day, when we die... It'll just be a dark tunnel, just like a sleep. I don't want to underplay how much death is our enemy here. Death, death is the final foe that Jesus will crush. Death is the big one. But if you believe in Jesus today, when you die, you're not stuck in darkness. In a sense, you're just asleep, going through a tunnel until one day Jesus calls your name, and even better than this resurrection, permanently you're raised forever. Verse 26, And the report of this went through all that district. I bet. I bet. How could, how could you keep silence after Jesus does this for you and does this for your daughter? You wouldn't be able to help but, but just share with everybody what Jesus has done for you. Wow. Let's quickly, um, after these two miracles, stop for a moment. Let's reflect on uh, some similarities that these miracles share and, and some points that they prove. So, so we have the healing of the woman with the discharge of blood and Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Well, both were women. 
for starters, and, and they were usually neglected by their culture. Their word didn't amount to much, considered less than men. One girl was rich and one was poor. One belonged to an elite religious ruler and one was an outcast. And who did Jesus love more? Trick question. Jesus loved them both equally. Jesus healed them both equally because they came to him with desperate faith. The daughter didn't come to Jesus with desperate faith, but but the father did. Jesus loved both. That's the nature of our Messiah. He doesn't pick sides. He doesn't see class. He doesn't see poverty. Like, he just, he just loves them both. There's, there's no categories in Jesus' mind. If you come to him in faith, Jesus will bless you. Next section, the insightful blind men. So we move on. This is our second miracle account. Now, remember, the first two were sort of one account of the three. So here is our second of three, starting in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So yet again, another miracle is Jesus is just walking from point A to point B as Jesus passed on. So Jesus is just just full of miracles. They just flow out of him. Now, so blindness in this culture, or until now in history, was considered the incurable disease in those days. Like almost, almost as bad as death. We at least have before Jesus two accounts of people being raised from dead, and we have zero from people receiving sight again. Blindness was like the big, bad, incurable thing. No one had power over it except for Yahweh. So no one's been healed of their blindness in the Bible yet. They call Jesus son of David here. So, so this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that somebody besides Matthew has called Jesus the son of David. So these blind men, they've, they've caught up to the theology of Matthew. So this didn't just show that they had faith. They had a, a more theologically accurate faith than, than anybody so far. This showed they expected Jesus was the Messiah, God's king on David's throne to, to come and bring the kingdom of God and rule over God's people. This is a messianic title. In Isaiah 42, 7, God promised that God's servant would open the eyes of the blind. And they expect that Jesus can do exactly that because Jesus is the Messiah. Here's the irony. These two men are blind. And so far, they see Jesus clearer than anybody else has so far. Son of David. Verse 28. When he entered the house, so Jesus doesn't even answer their first attempt at begging. He just walks by them and just goes into the house. The blind men came to him, so they followed him in desperately. Again, there is desperation here. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. It's kind of interesting that Jesus would ask them if they believe that he's able to do this. They, they, already, they already confirmed his identity. They've already showed faith that he's the son of David, the Messiah, they're, they're clearly following him into the house. They're desperate. They, obviously, they believe Jesus can do something. Matthew here is drawing clear attention to their faith. So let's follow Matthew's lead here and look at three things that the faith of these blind men shows us. One, shows us what or, or who our faith should be in. Who should our faith be in? Have mercy on us, son of David. 
Our faith should be in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Messiah. Two, what do we have faith in Jesus for? Mercy. Have mercy on us, son of David. Ultimately, we don't go to Jesus because he's going to give us a miracle. We don't go to Jesus because, because we deserve a miracle. He, he doesn't owe us anything, and he doesn't always give us miracles. We go to Jesus for mercy. That's the one thing the son of David in this life has promised us. Gospel mercy. He freely gives away mercy. That's our greatest need, forgiveness of sin. Three, how should we come to faith in Jesus? Desperately. So, so just imagine these blind guys following Jesus, and imagine if you were blind, how hard it would be for a long distance to follow Jesus in a big crowd, and then to somehow know that Jesus has kind of departed from the crowd and walked into a house, and then desperately crawl into the house after him. I mean, this was difficult stuff. This wasn't just, oh, hey, Jesus. Like, they came to Jesus desperately. It was, it was hard for them to keep following Jesus, but they saw something in him that made following him worth it. They knew there was something about him that, that if we can just get to Jesus, they were desperate. So this shows us that our faith needs to be desperate. We need to keep on knocking, keep on seeking, and keep on asking. And because of their faith... Verse 29. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Jesus heals blind sight. Jesus, Jesus is the only one who can take away blindness physically and spiritually. Jesus is the first person in the Bible to do this. Exodus 4.11 says, Who gives sight or removes it? Is, is it not I, Yahweh? Psalm 146.8 declares, The Lord, Yahweh, opens the eyes of the blind. And Jesus, when no one else has done this in the Bible yet, comes along, lays his hand on their face, and their eyes are opened. Let that sink in. Who can open the eyes of the blind? Yahweh, only Yahweh. Who's opening the eyes of the blind? Jesus. Now, I said earlier that we'd discussed the phrase from the last miracle, your faith has made you well, which gets abused a lot. I thought it would probably be appropriate to discuss that along with this similar phrase, according to your faith, let it be so. So many false teachers will say that, that this Bible verse teaches that the amount of your faith produces how big of a blessing or how big of a miracle you get or if you get a miracle. Didn't get healed, didn't get your miracle, not enough faith. According to your faith, let it be so. Isn't that what it says? But don't we know already from Matthew that that's, that's just not true? That's not how it works. We've seen this in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me show you what I mean. Think about the imperfect faith we've seen so far. Desperate, imperfect, not a full understanding, not having everything together, totally healed. Now think of the faith of the centurion. Jesus said of the centurion, surely, surely, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. So clearly the centurion had, had greater, better, more in amount and better in quality faith than the people we're looking at today. And who did Jesus bless less? Trick question, neither of them. Both of them were blessed by Jesus. 
Everybody who came to Jesus in faith was healed. It's not about the amount or the perfection of somebody's faith that, that appeals to Jesus, but just, just the presence of faith appeals to Jesus. We should also add that faith doesn't always get you your miracle. Sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus passed through whole towns without healing anybody. Sometimes he just, while there were still crowds of people waiting to be healed, he would just go off and pray. The only sure promise that we have from Jesus in this life is mercy from the son of David. And as we've seen, just faith, even desperate, even rough, the size of a mustard seed, that's enough to win Jesus's mercy. Shouldn't that be enough for us? The rest of our life, we never see anything from the hand of God but mercy. Shouldn't that be enough? Continue in verse 30. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that nobody knows about it. Why didn't Jesus want people to know about this? (laughs) I'm the son of David, here to bring the kingdom of God. Open blind eyes, heal lame people. Don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> that, that kind of seems counterintuitive. Well, so far in Jesus' mission, here's probably why I didn't want people to know quite yet. First of all, if, if a greater crowd came around Jesus, it would just make him harder. It would just make it harder for him to do ministry. He would be so encumbered that he couldn't heal all the people around him. It would just be, it would be difficult. We also know that Jesus wasn't wanting a big movement or or a rebellion or anything like that. And Son of David talk would probably get messianic expectations going. People would get riled up and this might fuel to a rebellion. So Jesus doesn't want people to know just yet. And then Matthew says he sternly charged them. What do they do anyway? Verse 31. They went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. It would be easy for us to look at this and think that this was an act of of cute disobedience. Oh, sure, they did something that Jesus told them not to do, but they had good intentions, and and, and what's wrong with sharing Jesus' fame anyway? I mean, God, God knows their heart. That's how we view a lot of sins in our culture today. It's technically wrong, but, but God knows my heart, and, and I don't see any bad coming from it, so I might as well do it. That's not how Jesus or Matthew are thinking about it here. Matthew deliberately says that to draw attention and, and rebuke them for, for their lack of obedience here. In other words, even if you don't understand Jesus' commands, even if you, in, in all of your wisdom, <laughs> think you have a better wisdom than Jesus and you see good coming from what you'd like to do instead of what Jesus has actually told you to do, disobedience is disobedience. Full stop, point blank. Jesus say it, we obey it, or we don't. Disobedience is disobedience. Once they gained their vision, at least for a time, looks like the blind men stopped living by faith because faith is always shown in obedience. But we can still marvel at the power of Jesus to take away Blind eyes, which is something the scripture says only the Lord can do, only Yahweh can do, only God can do this. Jesus just does it. Our next section, the third miracle accounts today, 
Jesus and the voiceless. So, so, so far we've seen the ruler's daughter and we've seen the, the woman with a discharge of blood. And now we come along to verse 32, our last miracle. We've also seen the blind men, sorry. And now we come to our last miracle account in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the man spoke. There's not a lot of ink spilled over that one. <laughs> Good friends bring their friend to Jesus. He's mute. He's got a demon. Jesus casts it out. The man speaks. Simple as that. And while that's still amazing, and that, that should still blow our minds, like this should never get old to us after all of the miracle accounts. Matthew could have written all of the works of Jesus in the world, and when you get to the last one, you should still be just as amazed. So while that's amazing, that's not where Matthew's putting the focus. Rather, Matthew is putting the focus on the reactions to this miracle. Continuing in verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. We've never, we've never seen anything like this. We don't have a category for Jesus. Jesus breaks the categories of the world. And I think we can safely say that, that if Israel, God's, God's covenant people who he's revealed himself to, almost exclusively, if they've never seen anything like this, then, then nobody in the whole world has ever seen anything like Jesus. Jesus is, is truly unique, no category for him. Strong and compassionate, powerful beyond all measure. So the crowds see Jesus and they're amazed. No, no, no kidding, we should be just as amazed. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those who should see Jesus clearest. Those who a long time ago should have clued in, this is the son of David, the Messiah. What do they say? Verse 34. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of the demons. <laughs> what? <laughs> How, how could they say that? that that's, a, that's an insane statement. Jesus is, is working for the devil. They're saying that Jesus is employed by Satan and that Satan is doing these miracles through Jesus when their own scripture says that, that only Yahweh can do these things and that the Messiah will come and do these things. They, they don't even deny that, that Jesus did all of these miracles. You, you couldn't. If, if you walked with Jesus, there's no denying that Jesus worked miraculous wonders. So they can't deny it. But in a last-ditch attempt to discredit Jesus, because of the darkness in their hearts, they said he casts out demons by the prince of the demons. Even the blind men could see who Jesus was. Son of David, have mercy on us. But the Pharisees can't. What a, what a twist of the knife of irony here. In Matthew 23, Jesus will call the Pharisees Blind guides, blind fools, and blind men. John 9, 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. This is one of the, the great reversals of the kingdom of God. People with no sight, but with desperate faith, Jesus gives them sight. People who should see by now, in high positions, but, but don't get it, that's taken away from them, and they're made blind. 
and they're given into their blindness. We should also appreciate how difficult a situation this is. Israel's pinnacle of organized religion just labeled Jesus a satanic worker. But the crowds, they see how Jesus is doing all these amazing things and they marvel. So we kind of have three categories here. We have Jesus doing awesome stuff. And then on, on this side of Jesus, we got the crowds. No one's ever done anything like this in all of Israel. And we have the Pharisees. This man casts out demons by the prince of the demons. And here's what's so difficult about this, guys. Don't miss this. The Pharisees aren't just snickering in the corner, ominous, for sure bad guys with a dark cloud over them. The Pharisees were the one teaching these crowds the law. These people looked up to the Pharisees. They taught these people the law. They taught their children the law. They were the mentors and spiritual fathers of the crowd. These people probably loved the Pharisees. And not in just some high and haughty way, but in a very close way. These, these Pharisees probably led these people, truly so, through some really hard times. Now they see Jesus, but they hear their spiritual fathers saying that he's a demon. Well, the cost of following Jesus went through the roof just now. I mean, there's two mutually exclusive groups now, Jesus and the Pharisees, and, and you can't follow both. Today, it might seem a little more nuanced than that. Maybe we don't have Pharisees calling Jesus a demon, but the world still is, is grasping for our allegiance in opposition to Jesus, and we can't have both. Another thing to notice is how huge of a turning point this is in the Gospel of Matthew. The whole dynamic shifts. We've seen the Pharisees questioning Jesus' theology until now, but they've never made a statement so explicit as this, that, that he's doing this by the king of the prince of the demons. So, so this is like one of those scenes in a, movies, in a movie where there's the antagonist and the protagonist, the good guy and the bad guy, and you're not really sure how bad the bad guy actually is yet until that one scene where they put an ominous light on him and he says something really scary. Even though that's not what these people, these crowds might have been thinking, that's how Matthew's painting it for us. This sets the tension for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. From here on out, the tension is going to build between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're going to be butting heads for the rest of the Gospel. And this conflict eventually leads to the death of your Messiah. This is a big deal. This isn't just... Well, obviously, the Pharisees are the bad guys. No, this is, this is a big thing for everyone around and for us when we read this. This should be a big thing. So what do you say to Jesus? Well, we've seen his power. We're kind of like the crowds watching him. We've seen his power over chronic disease. We've seen his power over even death. We've seen his power over blindness. We've seen his power over demon oppression and muteness. Truly, we've never seen anything like this before. We've seen Jesus' power. We also have had today a clear vision of the compassion of Jesus. It was said of Jesus in Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break. When Jesus came to somebody, broken, messy, imperfect, bruised. He didn't break him. He could have broken him. He didn't break him. He healed them. 
He had great compassion on them and healed them. We've seen Jesus' compassion in taking broken, messed up people and reintroducing them into community and putting them in the family of God. That's our Messiah's heart. And hasn't Jesus done the same for us here today? I mean, look at us. <laughs> we're, we're not a very admirable bunch. <laughs> There's nothing really special about us. We're messed up. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> we're all different people, and we all have different messes, and we're all really messy, and we would have nothing to do with each other besides for the fact that Jesus, the son of David, found us crawling to him in faith and had mercy on us. He made a family out of us. The people to your left, the people over to your right, the, the people on the other corner of the church who you never even talked to, you wouldn't dare to talk to. If they've come to the son of David in faith, that's your family now. And Jesus declares, just like he did to those crowds, he declares to us, behold, take heart. I have made this one clean. I have made this one well. Their faith has saved them. And <laughs> we can't argue with Jesus. If we believe, we're a family now. Even if we have nothing in common, if we have Jesus in common, we have everything in common. So do we act like that? Do we, do we act like that or are we just here? Are we afraid of the messier people in our church? The people who don't have it all together? Their faith is kind of flawed. They're probably only here because they're at a desperate spot in life. Are we afraid of those people or, or are we going to be like our Messiah? We have no right to be any different than him. Are, are we just going to ignore people who are down and out? Or are we going to invite them over? Even if they seem a little bit confused and a little bit messy, why not associate yourself with them? Have them over for lunch. Talk to them. Be friends with them. Not just to make them your project and then be holier than them, but, but to love them, to really love them. Another question is, are we going to deny our own messiness? Are we going to pretend that we have it all together? Or are we going to humble ourselves at the feet of the Messiah? Even if, like Jairus, all of our religious, pious friends are watching us, and what will they ever think of me? Even if that's the case, why not be like Jairus and grovel at the feet of the Messiah? Lord, help me. Why are you afraid to show your messiness here of all places? Why not say, Son of David, make me clean, and show that to others around us? That's what we're here for. And he will make us clean, but... All of us need to be made clean. So why not be more candid about your struggles, even if until today no one's really caught on that you had any? And if you're here and you're part of the crowd watching Jesus, you hear the voice of the world tugging, but you, but you see Jesus, and you know if you go to him, something amazing will happen. If you don't know if you can be a part of this family or not, if you're a bruised reed, Jesus' word to you is this. Take heart. Don't be afraid of Jesus. Though you're bruised, 
Even though your faith isn't perfect, Jesus isn't going to break you. Jesus will do you no harm. Jesus is harmless. He's not harmless to those who oppose him, but to people who come to him in faith, never once has Jesus turned them away. Spurgeon used to say, on judgment day, of all of the masses of people standing there before the judging Christ damned, not one of them will be able to say that I went to Jesus and he turned me away. None of them. Jesus will not break you. So take heart. If you believe, Jesus says your faith has saved you. He makes us pure and clean. He he brings people from death into eternal life. He opens blind eyes. He, He considers the voiceless. Truly, we've seen today that our Messiah, unlike the world, unlike anything we've ever seen, is strong and kind, powerful and compassionate. Kids in Sunday school, you recently learned the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. It's a really good song, isn't it? That's another way to say Jesus is powerful and compassionate. Strong and kind, powerful and compassionate. And what does the song say? Jesus said that if you thirst, or if you're weak, or if you fear, or even if you're totally lost, we can always come to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Jesus, powerful and compassionate. Let's pray. Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, we ask that you would make us clean. Jesus, if you only say the word, we will be made well. And Lord, you've done that for for many of us here today, and we give you praise and, and glory for that. God, for those who you haven't done that for, we pray that you would open blind eyes as only you can do. Jesus, we thank you that you are so meek and lowly and gentle and tender. And at the same time, you've You've got the power of a roaring lion over all of your enemies. No one's like you, Jesus. Truly, we've never seen anything like you in the whole world. And so, Jesus, why would we ever look away from you? Jesus, help those who aren't sure about coming to you. Lord, just flee to you. We don't have anywhere else to go, Lord. There's no gospel 2.0 for the really messy people. Your blood once was enough. So, Jesus... Help us to see that, even those of us who are saved but but need to keep coming back and keep knocking and keep asking and, and keep seeking. Jesus, would you show yourself to us? Lord, don't let our faith and our begging be in vain. And Lord, by faith we understand that that you won't. Jesus, you are strong and kind, and you will help us, and you, mighty God, will save us. God, we're asking you these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and for the sake of his kingdom growing bigger and bigger until that day when he is all in all. Amen.